Pantheism, Its Story and Significance Written by J. Allen St. Picton Narrated by Miguel Connor Edited by Darren Grimes Forward Pantheism differs from the systems of belief constituting the main religions of the world in being comparatively free from any limits of period climate or race. For a while, what we roughly call the Egyptian religion, the Vedic religion, the Greek religion, Buddhism, and others of similar fame have been necessarily local and temporary. Pantheism has been, for the most part, a dimly discerned background, an esoteric significance of many or all religions, rather than a, quote, denomination by itself. The best illustration of this characteristic of pantheism is the Catholicity of its great prophet, Spinoza. For he felt so little antagonism to any Christian sect, that he never urged any member of a church to leave it, but rather encouraged his humbler friends, who sought his advice, to make full use of such spiritual privileges as they appreciated most. He could not, indeed, content himself with the fragmentary forms of any sectarian creed. But in the few writings which he made some effort to adapt to the popular understanding, he seems to think it possible that the faith of pantheism might someday leaven all religions alike. I shall endeavor briefly to sketch the story of that faith, and to suggest its significance for the future. But first, we must know what it means. Pantheism, then, being a term derived from two Greek words signifying all and God, suggests to a certain extent its own meaning. Thus, if atheism be taken to mean a denial of the being of God, pantheism is its extreme opposite. Because pantheism declares that there is nothing but God. This, however, needs explanation. For no pantheist has ever held that everything is God, any more than a teacher of physiology in enforcing on his own students the unity of the human organism would insist that every toe and finger is the man. But such a teacher, at least in these days, would almost certainly warn his pupils against the notion that the man can be really divided into limbs or organs or faculties or even into soul and body. Indeed, he might without affectation adopt the language of a much controverted creed, so far as to pronounce that, quote, the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, one altogether. In this view, the man is the unity of all organs and faculties. But it does not in the least follow that any of these organs or faculties, or even a selection of them, is the man. If I apply this analogy to an explanation of the above definition of pantheism as the theory that there is nothing but God, it must not be supposed that I regard the parallelisms as perfect. In fact, one purpose of the following exposition will be to show why and where all such analogies fail. For pantheism does not regard man or any organism as a true unity. In the view of pantheism, the only real unity is God. But without any inconsistency, I may avail myself of common impressions to correct a common misimpression. Thus, those who hold that the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, one altogether, but at the same time deny that the toe or the finger or the stomach or the heart 
is the man, are bound in consistency to recognize that if pantheism affirms God to be all in all, it does not follow that pantheism must hold a man or a tree or a tiger to be God. Excluding, then, such an apparently plausible, but really fallacious inversion of the pantheistic view of the universe, I repeat that the latter is the precise opposite of atheism. So far from tolerating any doubt as to the being of God, it denies that there is anything else. For all objects of sense and thought, including individual consciousness, whether directly observed in ourselves or inferred as existing in others, are, according to pantheism, only facets of an infinite unity, which is, quote, altogether one, in a sense inapplicable to anything else. Because that unity is not merely the aggregate of all the finite objects which we observe or infer, but is a living whole expressing itself in infinite variety. Of that infinite variety, our gleams of consciousness are infinitesimal parts, but not parts in a sense involving any real division. The questions raised by such a view of the universe, many of them unanswerable, as is also the case with questions raised by every other view of the universe, will be considered further on. All that I'm trying to secure in these preliminary observations is the general idea of the pantheistic view of the universe, as distinguished from that of polytheism monotheism, or atheism. Of course, there have been different forms of pantheism, as there have been also various phases of monotheism. And in the brief historical review which will follow this introductory explanation of the name, I shall note at least the most important of those forms. But any which fail to conform to the general definition here given, will not be recognized as pantheism at all, though they may be worth some attention as approximations thereto. For any view of the universe allowing the existence of anything outside the divine unity denies that God is all in all and, therefore, is obviously not pantheism. Whether we should recognize as true pantheism any theory involving the evolution of a finite world or worlds out of the divine substance at some definite epoch or epochs may be a debatable question, provided that the eternity or inviolability of the divine oneness is absolutely guarded in thought. Yet I will anticipate so far as to say, in my view, the question must be negatived. At any rate, we must exclude all creeds which tolerate the idea of a creation in the popular sense of the word, or of a final catastrophe. True, the individual objects, great or small, from a galaxy to a moth, which have to us apparently a separate existence, have all been evolved out of preceding modes of being, by a process which seems to us to involve a beginning and to ensure an end. But in the view of pantheism, properly so-called, the transference of such a process to the whole universe is the result of an illusion suggested by false analogy. For the process called evolution, though everywhere operative, affect, each of them, only parts of the infinite whole of things. And experience cannot possibly afford any justification for supposing that they affect the universe itself. Thus, the matter or energy in which we think we consist was in existence, every atom of it, and every element of force, before we were born, and will survive our apparent death.
And the same thing, at least on the pantheistic view, is true of every other mode of apparently separate or finite existence. Therefore, no birth of a new nebula ever added a grain of matter or an impulse of new energy to the universe. And the final decease of our solar system, if such an event be in prospect, cannot make any difference whatever to the infinite balance of forces, of which, speaking in anthropomorphic and inadequate language, we suppose the eternal all to consist. These observations are not intended to be controversial, but only to make clear the general sense in which the term pantheism is here used. Not that it would be possible at the outset to indicate all that is implicit in the definition. I only wish to premise plainly that I am not concerned with any view of the world such as implies or admits that, whether by process of creation or emanation or self-division or evolution, the oneness of the eternal has ever been marred or anything other that being of God has been or can be produced. But before passing on to the promised historical review, it is, perhaps, necessary to refer again to a remark previously made, that pantheism may be considered either from the point of view of philosophy or from that of religion. Not that the two points of view are mutually exclusive, but, as a matter of fact, pantheism as a religion is, with certain exceptions among Indian saints and later Neoplatonists, almost entirely a modern development, of which Spinoza was the first distinct and devout teacher. For this statement, justification will be given hereafter. Meantime, to deprecate adverse prejudice, I may suggest that a careful study of the most ancient forms of pantheism seems to show that they were purely philosophical, an endeavor to reach in thought the ultimate reality which polytheism travestied and which the senses disguised. But little or no attempt was made to substitute the contemplation of the eternal for the worship of mediator divinities. Thus, in the same spirit in which Socrates ordered the sacrifice of a cock to Aslepius for his recovery from the disease of mortal life, philosophical pantheists, whether Egyptian or Greek or even Indian, satisfied their religious instincts by hearty communion with the popular worship of traditional gods. Or, if it is thought that the medieval mystics were religious pantheists, a closer examination of their devout utterances will show that, though they approximated to pantheism, and even used language such as, if interpreted logically, must have implied it, yet they carefully reserve articles of the ecclesiastical creed, entirely consistent with the fundamental position that there is nothing but God. Indeed, their favorite comparison of creature life to the ray of a candle is not really a pantheistic conception, because to the true pantheist, the creature is not an emanation external to God but a finite mode of infinite being. Still, the mystics did much to prepare the devout for an acceptance of Spinoza's teaching. And although so amazing a transfiguration of religion rather dazzle than convince the world at first, nay, though it must be acknowledged that one, and perhaps more of Spinoza's fundamental conceptions have increasingly repelled rather than attracted religious people. Yet it can hardly be disputed that he gave an impulse to contemplative religion, of which the effect is 
only now beginning to be fully realized. Chronological Syllabus Relation of Pantheism to Religious Evolution Primeval Period Admittedly conjectural, but almost necessarily assumed, when man first emerged, he must have been like the baby described by Tennyson and mixed himself with the world. In fact, it was a pre-animistic stage. Life was everywhere. But it had not taken the form of ghosts or portents. Fetishism, animism. Prehistoric, former, the notion of souls able to detach themselves from bodies and therefore to survive death. Ancestor worship. Latter, a fascination by strange-looking, weird, or imposing objects enshrining some sacred potency for good and evil. Mostly the latter. Both survive all over the world in various modified forms, and are traceable even in the doctrines and ritual of advanced theological and ceremonial religions. Polytheism the belief in many personal gods, among whom, however, one may be a primus inter pares, a higher development of animism, prevalent in Europe down to the 4th and even 5th century AD, and in India down to the present time. Henotheism, the local or national worship of one god to the neglect of the others while the existence and local power of the gods of their tribes is not denied. This seems to have been the religion of Israel from the beginning of the kingdom, as distinguished from the loose federation of tribes, until the time of the Deuteronomists, i.e. according to Carpenter and Battersby, and the general tendency of recent authoritative opinion, sometime in the 7th century B.C. Henotheism was also favored by local populations in ancient Egypt. Monotheism, the worship of one personal god as the only deity, all others being treated either as devils or as nothing in the world. 1 Corinthians verse 4 This began to be the religion of Israel about the time of the Deuteronomists, and was much promoted by the greater prophets, the Isaiahs, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But it does not appear to have been quite definitely and finally established until after the capacity and the consecration of the Second Temple. The monotheism of Muhammad owed a good deal to Jewish tradition, but it was and is even more intensely unitarian than the religion of Israel. Under Christianity, the doctrines of the Trinity and Incarnation have prepared the way for a larger conception of deity and a wider tolerance. Pantheism, the idea of the universe as one living being, of which all creatures and things are, parts and proportions, and therefore in themselves nothing. This religion of the universe was really implicit in fetishism and animism, much as a tree is implicit in the seed. In that sense, it is prehistoric and almost coval with the first emergence of man. But perhaps the first conscious and express realization of what was implicit in animism is to be found in the Vedic literature where all gods and men and animals and things are regarded as modifications of Brahma's being. The successive steps in the development of pantheism, parallel with or under the guise of more partial religions, are traced in the preceding pages. Chapter 1. Pre-Christian Pantheism it has been the customary and perhaps inevitable method of writers on pantheism to trace its main idea back to the dreams of Vedic poets, the musings of Egyptian priests, and the speculations of the Greeks. 
But though it is undeniable that the divine unity of all being was an almost necessary issue of earliest human thought upon the many and the one, yet the above method of treating pantheism is to some extent misleading, and therefore caution is needed in using it. For the revival of pantheism at the present day is much more a tangible resultant of action and reaction between science and religion than a ghost conjured up by speculation. Thus, religious belief, driven out from, quote, the darkness and the cloud of Sinai, takes refuge in the mystery of matter. And if the glory passes from the Mount of Transfiguration, it is because it expands to etherealize the whole world as the garment of God. Again, the evidence of the atom into galaxies of electrons destroys the only physical theory that ever threatened us with atheism. And the infinitesimal electrons themselves open up immeasurable perspective into the abyss of the unknowable, in which all things, Quote, live and move and have their being. Therefore, it matters little to us, except as a matter of antiquarian interest, to know what the Vedic singers may have dreamed, or what Thales or Xenophanes or Parmenides may have thought about the first principle of things, or about the many and the one. For our spiritual genealogy is not from them but from a near and double line of begetters, including seers in the true sense of the word, and saints, for both are represented by Kepler and Hooker, Newton and Jeremy Taylor, Descartes and Spinoza, Leibniz and Wesley, Spencer and Newman. And even these have authority not through any divine right of genius or acquired claim of learning, but because they illume and interpret obscure suggestions of our own thoughts. Indeed, to the sacrament of historic communion with the past, as well as to the chief rite of the Church, the apostolic injunction is applicable. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread. Obeying that injunction, any man possessing ordinary powers of observation and reflection may, in the course of a summer day's walk, find abundant reason for interest in the speculations of historic pantheism. For the aspect of nature then presented to him is one both of movement and repose, of variety and harmony, of multiplicity and unity. Thus the slight breeze, scarcely stirring the drowsy flowers, the monotonous cadences of the stony brook, and the gliding of feathery flecks of clouds across the blue, create a peace far deeper than absolute stillness, and suggest an infinite life in which activity and repose are one. Besides, there is evident everywhere an interplay of forces acting and reacting so as mutually to help and fulfill one another. For instance, the falling leaves give back the carbon they gathered from the air, and so repay the soil with interest for the subtler essences derived therefrom and dissolved in the sap. The bees, again, humming among the flowers, while actuated only by instincts of appetite and thrift, fructify the blooms and become a connection link between one vegetable generation and another. The heat of the sun draws up water from ocean and river and lake, while chilly currents of higher air return it here and there in rain. So earth, sea, and air are forever trafficking together, 
and their interchange of riches and force is complicated ten thousandfold by the activities of innumerable living things, all adapting themselves by some internal energy to the ever-varying balance of heat and cold, moisture and drought, light and darkness, chemical action and reaction. And all this has been going on for untold millions of years, nor is there any sign of weariness now. In the mood engendered by such familiar experiences of a holiday saunter, it may well occur to anyone to think with interest and sympathy of the poets and seers who, thousands of years ago, first dared to discern in this maze of existence the varied expression of one all-embracing and eternal life or power. Such contemplations and speculations were entirely uninfluenced by anything which the Christian Church recognizes as revelation. Yet we must not on that account suppose that they were without religion or pretended to explain anything without references to superhuman beings called gods and demons. On the contrary, they, for the most part, shared, subject to such modifications as were imperatively required by cultivated common sense, the beliefs of their native land. But the difference between these men and their unthinking contemporaries lay in this, that the former conceived of one supreme and comprehensive divinity beyond the reach of common thought, an ultimate and eternal being which included gods as well as nature within its unity. So, for them, Indra, Zeus, or Jove were mere modes of the one being also manifest in man and bird and tree. Every race possessing even the rudiments of culture has been impelled by a happy instinct, which, if we like, we may call inspiration, to record in more or less permanent form its experience of nature, of life, and of what seem the mysteries of both. To this inspiration we owe the sacred books of the Jews, but it is now generally recognized that an impulse not wholly dissimilar also moved prophetic or poetic minds among other races, such, for instance, as the Egyptians, the Chaldeans, and the Aryan conquerors of India, to inscribe on papyrus or stone or brick or palm leaf the results of experience as interpreted by free imagination traditional habits of thought, and limited knowledge. Of this ancient literature, a considerable part is taken up by the mysteries apparently involved in life, conduct, and death. Most notably is this the case with the ancient Indian literature called the Vedas, and such sequels as the Upanishads, Sutras, and, much later, the Bhagavad Gita. This collection, like our Bible, forms a library of writings issued at various dates, extending over much more than a thousand years. The forgotten singers and preachers of this prehistoric wisdom were as much haunted as we ourselves are with the harassing questions suggested by sin and sorrow, by life and death, and by inspirations after a higher state. And many, perhaps we may say most of them, found comfort in the thought that essentially they belong to an all-comprehensive and infinite life, in which, if they acted purely and nobly, their seeming personality might be merged and find peace. Their frame of mind was religious rather than philosophical but their philosophy was naturally conformed to it, and in their contrast of the bewildering variety of finite visible things with the unity of the eternal being of which all are phases, 
Those ancients were in close sympathy with the thoughts of the modern meditative saunterer by field and river and wood. But the enormous interval of time separating us from those early Indian thinkers necessarily involves very great differences in conditions of thought. And we should not be surprised if amidst much in their writings that stirs our sympathy, there is also a great deal which to us incongruous and absurd. Therefore, it may well be before quoting these writings to note one or two points marking an almost incommensurable difference between their mode and ours of regarding the world. First, they were much less removed than we were from the influence of fetishistic and animistic traditions. Even in the Greek and Roman classics, the casual reader is often revolted by the grossly absurd stories told of gods and heroes. And indeed, it is impossible to conceive of the amours of Zeus or Jove, for instance, with Leda, Europa, or Danae as having been first conceived during an age marked by the poetic genius and comparative culture events in the most ancient epics. But the most probable solution of the puzzle is that the earliest civilization inherited a number of animal stories, such are characteristic of savagery in all parts of the world and that the first literary generations into whose poetic myths those stories were transferred, being as much accustomed to them as to other surroundings of their childhood, such as bloody sacrifices, mystic expiations, and fantastic initiations, saw no incongruity in anything told them of the gods. Besides, as these wild myths were associated with sacred rites, the inveterate conservatism of religion, which insisted on stone knives and sacrifices long after bronze and iron came in, was likely enough to maintain the divine importance of those fables. Just as the historicity of Balaam's ass and Jonah's whale is in some churches piously upheld still. 2. In the times from which the first known pantheistic teaching dates, ideas of nature's order were incongruous and indeed incommensurable with ours. Not that the world was then regarded as a chaos, but such order as existed was considered to be a kind of balance of power between various unseen beings, some good, some evil some indifferent. True, some Indian prophets projected an idea of one eternal being, including all such veiled principalities and powers. But their pantheism was necessarily conditioned by their ignorance of natural phenomena. In fact, an irreducible inconsistency marred their view of the world. For while their pantheism should have taught them to think of a universal life or energy as working within all things, their theological habit of mind bound them to the incongruous notion of devas or deities molding, or at least ruling, matter from without. And, indeed, the nearest approach they made to the more genuine pantheism of modern times was the conception of a world emanating from and projected outside of Brahma, to be remerged in him after the lapse of ages. Now, if I am right in my definition of pantheism, as absolutely identifying God with the universe, so that, in fact, there cannot be anything but God, the inconsistency here noted must be regarded as fatal to the genuineness of the Indian or indeed of any other ancient pantheism. For the defect proved during many centuries to be incurable and was not indeed fully removed until Spinoza's time. 3. 
Another difference between ancient pantheists and ourselves was the absence in their case of any religious creed. Sanctioned by supernatural authority and embodied in a definite form, like that of the three angelic creeds or the Westminster Confession of Faith. Not that those ancients supposed themselves to be without a revelation. For the Vedas, at least, were considered to be of divine authority, and their words, metras, and grammar were regarded with a superstitious awe, such as reminds us of what has been called the, quote, Bibulatry of the Jewish rabbis. But subject to this verbal veneration, the rishis, or learned divines, use the utmost freedom in regard to the forced and fanciful interpretations extorted from the sacred text, a freedom which again reminds us of the paradoxical caprice shown by some schools of Jewish rabbis in their treatment of the volume they profess to regard with awe. The various finite gods, such as Vishnu, Indra, Krishna, Marut, or Varuna, were not the subjects of any church creed chanted every day and carefully stereotyped in the tender minds of children. On the contrary, various roles were assigned by successive generation to these divinities. So that, for instance, Varuna was at one time the god of the ocean and at another of the sky. But the uniform tendency of all poets and rishis alike was to seek, beyond all these gods, one unbeginning, unending, and all-comprehensive being, from whom these divas emerge, and into whom they must return. Not only so, but it is clearly suggested in many passages, of which an instance will presently be quoted, that the Eternal, called Brahma, who was the true self of all gods, was also the true self of man and bird and beast. So that, in fact, notwithstanding the logical emanation theory, he was the only real being, the all in all. Thus, one section of the Kanda Yoga Upanishad consists entirely of instructions given by a father, Udalaka, to his son, Svetakatu, who had gone through ordinary courses of study in the Vedas, but who in the father's view had failed to reach the true significance of life. Accordingly, Udalaka inquires, have you ever asked for that instruction by which we hear what cannot be heard, by which we perceive what cannot be perceived, by which we know what cannot be known? The youth, more accustomed than we are to teaching by paradox, expresses no surprise at this mode of putting things, but simply asks, What is that instruction, sir? The father then proceeds to give an explanation of what in these days is called monism, that is, the absolute singleness of ultimate being, and traces all that is, or seems to be, up to one ultimate essence. Now, whether in the form given by Udalaka to his exposition, his theory can properly be called pantheism according to the definition of it assumed above, is perhaps questionable. But that it was intended to be pantheism, there can be no doubt. In the beginning, says Udalaka, there was only witches Tov, one and only, without a second. Others say, in the beginning there was that only which is not, Tofuov, one only, without a second and from that which is not, that which is was born. But Udalaka rejects this latter doctrine as unthinkable, which, indeed, many explorers of Hegel have found with pain and anguish of mind. And then the father traces all the multiformity of the universe to the desire or will of the original one, that which is, it thought, 
May I be many. May I grow forth. It sent forth fire. My limits do not allow me to quote further the fantastic account given of the farther process by which water and earth, plants, animals, and men sprang out of the desire of the one. May I become many. May I grow forth. For our purposes, it is more important to show that in the view of Udalaka, however inconsistently he may express himself, the original one was never really divided, but remains the true self of every finite being, however apparently separate. Thus, consider the following dialogue, the first words being a direction of the father, Udalaka. Fetch me from thence a fruit of the Nigroda tree. Here is one, sir. Break it. It is broken, sir. What do you see there? These seeds, almost infinitesimal. Break one of them. It is broken, sir. What do you see there? Not anything, sir. The father said, My son, that subtle essence which you do not perceive there, of that very essence this very great Nyagrodra tree exists. Believe it, my son. That which is a subtle essence, in it all that exists has itself. It is the true. It is the self. And thou, O Sevaktika, art it. Here we are clearly taught that the self or inmost reality of every person and thing is the eternal one, or Brahma, or God. The same doctrine is taught in a more advanced form by the poem called the Bhagavad Gita, the date of which is probably more than a thousand years later than that of the Upanishad just quoted. In this poem, Krishna, incarnate from the nonsas Arjuna's charioteer, reveals for a special purpose his identity with Brahma, the eternal all, and Arjuna, when sufficiently instructed, adores him thus. O infinite Lord of gods, the world's abode, thou undivided art, o'er all supreme, thou art the first of gods, the ancient sire, the treasure house supreme of all the worlds, the knowing and the known, the highest seat. From thee the all has sprung, O boundless form. Varuna, Vasu, Agni, Yama thou. The moon, the sire, and the grandsire, two of men. The infinite in power of boundless force, the all thou dost embrace, the thou art all. These illustrations must suffice for Indian pantheism. Because, with Buddhism, we have nothing to do. For, according to its ablest European exponent, Professor T.W. Riz Davids, that system of religion simply ignored the conception of an all-in-all. All. And this not at all on philosophical grounds, but because its aims were entirely practical. For the aim of its founder was to show men how by a virtuous life, or lives, they might at last attain annihilation, or, at any rate, the extinction of the individual self, the apparent separateness of which was, in his view, the source of all misery. And if he could teach his followers to attain that salvation, he was entirely indifferent as to the opinions they might hold about the ultimate nature of the world, provided only that they did not fall into any heresy which proclaimed an immortal soul. The accounts given to us by the best authorities on Zoroaster and Parsiism scarcely justify us into thinking the religion of the Zendavesta to be pantheistic in our sense of the term. For though it would appear that Orzmud, or Ahura Mazda, the god of light and goodness, originated in 
or was born from and one with a nameless and personal unity, such as many answer to Herbert Spencer's unknowable, it cannot be accurately said that, according to the Persian view of the world, there is nothing but God. 4. To say nothing of the apparently independent existence of the principle of darkness and evil called Ahriman, the relation of the Amshapans, or supreme spirits, and of the Izeds, or secondary spirits, as well as the Feruz, or divine ideas to the impersonal unity, seems to be rather that of emanations than parts of a whole. Again, if it be true that, according to the Zen Avesta, the conflict of light and darkness will ultimately cease, and Araman with his demons will be annihilated, it is obvious that this implies a beginning and an end, with a process originating in the one, and consummated in the other. But such a process, though most actual on the finite scale, and joyfully or painfully real to us, contemplating, as we do only infinitesimal parts of the universe, and always under the forms of time and space, is yet incongruous and incommensurate with the thought of one all in all, unlimited by time or space, or whose lifetime is an eternal now. Thus, true pantheism takes the universe as it is in its infinity, regards it as without beginning or end, and worships it. Not that pantheism denies the existence of evil or is unmoved by the struggle between evil and good, or is inspired by the faith in the reiterated triumph of good wherever the local conflict arises. But it insists that evil is relative to the finite parts of the universe in their supposed isolation and cannot possibly affect the eternal all. It allows of no creation or emanation which would put any part of the wondrous whole in opposition to or separation from the eternal. But from its point of view, all change, evolution, progress, retrogression, sin, pain, or any other good or evil is local, finite, partial while the infinite coordination of such infinitesimal movements make one eternal peace. Egyptian religion need not detain us, for though there are clear traces of pantheistic speculation among the priests, it can scarcely be contended that such speculations had the same influence on the cultured laity as the teachings of the rishis had in ancient India. But the truth seems to be that the oldest popular theology of Egypt was only a variety of Negro animism and fetishism. Yet these groveling superstitions, as it often the case, evolved an unbroken continuity of higher faith. For, in the attempt made to adapt this savage cult to the religious needs of various districts, all alike gradually advancing in culture, the number and variety of divinities became so bewildering to the priests that the latter almost inevitably adopted the device of recognizing in parochial gods only so many hints of one all-comprehensive divine energy. Not that they ever embraced monotheism, or the belief in one personal god distinct from the universe. But if Plutarch be accurate, as there seems no reason to doubt, in his record of an inscription in a temple of Isis, they, or at least the most spiritual of them, found refuge in pantheism. For the transfigured and glorified goddess was not regarded as the maker of the universe, but as identical with it, and therefore unknowable. I am all that hath been, is, or shall be, and no mortal has lifted my veil, 
the prevalence of such pantheism, at least among the learned and spiritual of ancient Egypt, is, to a considerable extent, confirmed by other Greek writers besides Plutarch. But the inscription noted by Plutarch gives the sum and substance of what they tell us. Before considering the classical and Neoplatonic Greek speculation commonly regarded as pantheistic, we may do well to recall to mind the immense difference between the established habit of theological thought in our day and the vague, or at best, poetically vivid ideas of the ancients. For the long tradition of nearly 2,000 years, which has made monotheism to us almost as fixed an assumption as that of our own individuality, was entirely wanting in this case. Not that the idea of one supreme God had never been suggested, but it was not the Hebrew or Christian idea that was occasionally propounded. For in the ethnic mind it was rarely, if ever, regarded as inconsistent with polytheism, and consequently it verged on pantheism. Consequently, I say, because such monotheism as existed had necessarily to explain the innumerable minor deities as emanations from or manifestations of the Supreme God. And though such conscious attempts at reconciliation of beliefs in many gods and in one supreme were confined to a small minority of meditative priests and speculative philosophers, yet, really, the combination was implicit in the sort of polytheistic religion which possessed the family affections and patriotic associations of the early Greek world. For though we may find a difficulty in ridding ourselves of a prejudice wrought into the tissue of our early faith by the nursery lessons of childhood, it was not the graven or molten image which was really worshipped by the devout, but that form of superhuman power which, by local accident, had been identified with the idol. If, indeed, we suppose every idolater to have received definite religious teaching, analogous to that with which we ourselves were imbued in youth, we might well find this attitude inconceivable. But he had nothing of the kind. He only knew that in war, in hunting, in fishing, and farming, he was confronted with powers which pass his comprehension and tradition permeated him with the expectation that such powers would be appropriated by his worship of the images set up in their names. There was therefore no reason creed, such as those of the Catholic and Reformed churches, but only a vague sentiment brought to a focus by the associations of the shrine. From such a view of polytheism, it is easy to understand how most, if not all, of the old speculative philosophers could allow the existence of the traditional gods. Even while in reason contemplation, they saw that all deities were subordinate to and merge into one universal god. How far this unstable religious position was subject to the influence of the Oriental mysticism, at which we have glanced already, is, at any rate, so far as concerns the classical age of Greek philosophy, a matter of conjecture. But the resurrection of a prehistoric and almost forgotten civilization from the buried cities of Crete has brought to light many evidences of frequent intercourse, two or three thousand years before the Christian era, between European and Egyptian, or Asiatic, centers of life. Therefore, we may well believe that during the earliest stages of the evolution of thought in East and West, it was impossible, as at the present time, for any local school of thinkers to be absolutely original or independent. Thus, 
later Greek philosophers, whether themselves within sound of the echoes of Hindu teaching or not, may very well have grown up in an atmosphere impregnated with mythic germs, whose origin they did not know. But however that may be, Greek pantheism, while it had many points of contact with Eastern speculation, was more purely intellectual and less essentially religious than the pantheism of the Vedas, or the solemn dream that haunted Egyptian temples. For while the aspiration of Hindu pantheists was to find and assume the right attitude toward, quote, the glory of the sum of things, the Greeks, as St. Paul long afterwards said, sought after wisdom and were fascinated by the idea of tracing all the bewildering variety of nature up to some one principle, beginning, origin. Thus Thales of Miletus, during the late 7th and early 6th century BC, is said to have been satisfied when he found in water, or moisture, the ultimate principle out of which all things and all life, including gods and men, were evolved. With such a speculation of infant philosophy, we are here not concerned, except to say that it was not pantheism as understood in modern times. For while his ablest exponents admit that no sufficient evidence is left to show very clearly what he meant, there seems to be no reason for supposing that to him the universe was a living God. It would be fruitless to relate how successors of Thales varied his theory of an ultimate principle by substituting air or fire for water. But it is worthwhile to note that another citizens of Miletus, Anaximander, after an interval of some forty years, pronounced that the beginning, the first principle, the origin of all things, was neither water nor air nor fire but the infinite. And though the best authorities confess that they cannot be sure of his meaning, this may very well be because he anticipated Herbert Spencer by two and a half millenniums, in acknowledging that all things merge in one and the same unknowable. But so far as our evidence goes, he made no such attempt as the modern philosopher did to persuade the religious instinct that this unknowable could supply the place of all the gods. The position of Xenophanes, who toward the latter part of the 6th century BC, migrated, apparently for political reasons, in fear of Persian imperialism, from Colophon in Asia Minor to Elea in Italy, was a little different and, for our purposes, more interesting. For the few fragments which are unfortunately all that is left to us from his philosophical poetry are strongly suggestive of pantheism, and the interpretation put upon them by later classical and subclassical writers, who had his works before them, would appear decisive. True, the distinguished and enlightened scholar Simon Karsten, who, in the first quarter of the 19th century, found a labor of love in collecting and editing the remains of early Greek philosophers, deprecated such a judgment. Yet, while the motives for his special pleading were honorable, seeing the odious misrepresentations of pantheism, still prevalent in the Dutch scholar's native land, misrepresentations undissipated even by the splendor of Spinoza, his protest remains special pleading still. And he himself candidly quotes at large from an alleged work of Aristotle, possibly only a student's notes of the latter's lectures, and also from Simplicius, as reported by Trochophrastus in a comment on Aristotle's physics, sentences which describe the system of Xenophanes as unquestionably pantheistic. 
from which description I gather that the devout philosopher regarded God as the only real being, including all that in human language has been, is, and will be, without beginning or end, living and perceiving equally everywhere throughout his infinite essence. And if that essence is compared by Xenophanes to a sphere, neither bounded nor boundless, neither moving nor immovable, this is only because few, if any, in that age of the world could content themselves with loyally accepting the limits imposed on man by the very nature of things. Limits which now compel us to own that, while the eternal is more real than ourselves, yet, in the strict sense of knowing, he is, from an intellectual standpoint, the unknowable. This pantheism did not generate in Xenophanes any arrogant disdain for the religion of his time. For, though he condemned, in words often quoted, to folly which supposed the gods to have the human form, senses, passions, and appetites, he was yet glad to worship the divine all as partially manifested in finite beings, perhaps personified powers of nature. Thus, among the fragments of his poetry fortunately preserved is one exquisite gem, a description of a festive repast in the open air. Their purity comes first, symbolized by clear floor, clean hands, and spotless dishes. Upon purity waits beauty, not in the forms desired by sensuous passion, but in garlands of flowers and in delicate scents. The wine is unstinted, yet tempered with sparkling water. But, lest the plentifulness of bread and honey and cheese upon the lordly table should eclipse the highest sanctions of human joy, an altar prominent in the festive scene is heaped with offerings of flowers. Then, the first note of music is the praise of God, a praise taking form in blameless poetic myths and holy thoughts. In such a feast, the mind of the guests are kindled with a desire to be capable of doing right. There is no harm in drinking with reasonable moderation, and we may honor the guests who, warm by wine, talks of such noble deeds and instances of virtue as his memory may suggest. But let him not tell of titan battles, or those of the giants or centaurs, the fictions of bygone days, nor yet of factious quarrels, nor gossip that can serve no good end. Rather, let us ever keep a good conscience towards the gods. Having given so much space to an ancient, who seems to me especially interesting as a prophet of the ultimate apotheosis of earthly religions, I must be content to indicate, in a very few lines, the course of the pantheistic tradition among the Greeks after his day. The arithmetical mysticism of Pythagoras has no bearing upon our subject. Empedocles of Agrimentum, living about the middle of the 5th century BC, and thus, perhaps, in the second generation after Xenophanes, was, in many respects, a much more imposing figure, clothed in purple, wielding political power, possessing medical skill, and even working miraculous cures such as are apparently easy to men of personal impressiveness, sympathy, and magnetism. But he does not appear to have so nearly anticipated modern pantheism as did his humbler predecessor. For though the fragments of Empedocles, much larger in volume than those of Xenophanes, certainly hint at some kind of everlasting oneness in things, and expressly tell us that there is no creation nor annihilation, but only perpetual changes of arrangement, yet they present the other phase of thought, 
apparently irreconcilable with the doctrine that there is nothing other than God. Thus, he teaches that there are four elements, earth, air, water, and fire, out of which all things are generated. He also anticipates Lucretius in his pessimistic view of humanity's lot and insists on the apparently independent existence of a principle of discord or strife in the universe. It would be a forced interpretation to suppose them to have set forth precociously the Darwinian theory of the struggle for life. For his notion seems much more akin to the Zoroastrian imagination of Araman. Again, he sings melodiously, but most unphilosophically, of a former golden age in which the lion and the lamb would seem to have lain down together in peace, and trees yielded fruit all year round. At that time, the only deity was Venus, who was worshipped with bloodless offerings alone. Still, it must be remembered that, whether consistently or not, Empedocles produced an elaborate work on the nature of things, to which Lucretius makes eloquent and earnest acknowledgments. But the very approval of Lucretius forbids us to regard the older poet as a pantheist in our sense of the term. For certainly to him the universe cannot have been a living God. Between this philosophical idea of a oneness, not thought of as God, and the spiritual contemplation of a universal life of which all things are modes, the highest thoughts of men hover during the process by which, in some measure under extraneous influences, Greek speculation finally produced Neoplatonism, or, as we might say in the current phraseology of our time, the restatement of Plato's teachings. Of this school, arising in the early Christian centuries, some leaders were undoubtedly pantheists. But we cannot say this of Plato himself, nor of his master, Socrates. For though these great men were more profoundly interested in the moral order of the world than in any questions of physical nature, or even of metaphysical subtleties, they were never given to the kind of contemplation suggested above in extracts from the classical books of the East, the contemplation which educes the moral ideal from unreserved subordination of self to the universe as of the part to the whole. Doubtless, the inspiration imparted by Socrates to a discipline in mere intellect is superior, and the resulting moral and religious suggestions abounding in the dialogues did much to impel the current of religious evolution towards a spiritual aspect of the infinite all which fascinated some of the Neoplatonists and received its most splendid exposition from Spinoza. But the conditions imposed by necessary brevity compel me to pass by those classic names with this acknowledgement and to hasten toward the fuller revelation of pantheism as a religion. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.